What is up, everybody? I'm Brett L. Pate. That's Coach Bruce. And this is The Coach Approach. Stay on. Coach Bruce, what's up, brother? How you doing, man? Man, just just living the dream, man. Sitting here at home, I'm a little bit under the weather, so if I have a cough attack or something, I'll, I'll put myself on mute. But always super excited to jump on and do the podcast with you, man. There you go, there you go, man. How was your holidays? I, I know you had some COVID concerns or COVID issues last week that made uh, you guys have to change your Thanksgiving plans. Everyone doing okay in your part of the world? Everyone's doing great. Yeah, we're supposed to go up to Prescott, where my mother-in-law lives, and, and visit her and her husband. And they both got COVID, but they're fine now. They're fully recovered now. But <laughs> we ended up hosting at my house, and we have a blast when we host every year. It was just a last-minute scramble of like, holy crap! We found out I think <clears throat> I think on Wednesday during the day, which is why we weren't able to do the show last week. And I'm like, bro, I'm scrambling right now to find go to the grocery store, get everything we need. Hopefully, they're not out. You know, so we can have everybody over for Thanksgiving, but it, it turned out phenomenal. I mean, there's football on it. You're, you're drinking bourbon, having having turkey, and mashed potatoes, and everything else that goes with it. So it's always good, man. How about you? How was yours? Ours was good. Ours was good. It was a little different in the sense that, uh, you know, we're at the age now where our children and we have a shitload of them, um, and so we don't know who's going to be able to show up or whatever. So we pretty much just have an open door policy with our children that. Uh, Dinner always is going to be at five. That way they can go to their other parents' house, come to ours afterwards. So we ended up having five of them here, and it was a good time. So it's it's always good when you get an opportunity to spend time with your family. Hey, let's let's be real, man. You've got a starting five for both teams, and then you've got someone coming off the bench on one of them. you got a sixth man. So you got it's 11 pretty- kids. Though. Don't don't sell it short. Just say, I got a lot of kids. you got 11 kids. That's, that's a yeah. yeah, It is. I don't know how you do it. They're, they're pretty great. but uh, So here we go. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Uh, I know that you, uh, we talked about it earlier, but um, have trade deadlines coming up in a lot of leagues. And, and uh, it's getting down to the point of, and I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited because I'm a little burnt out. And every week that we move forward is another week to, uh, you know, draft season and things like that. But uh we do have some uh, big-time fantasy football coming up here over the next few weeks. No, this is the fun time. And I think what's interesting about the NFL going from, you know, a 17-week schedule to an 18-week schedule with 17 games, there's a lot of leagues that, you know, the playoff weeks start week 14 or week 15 because they're, they're kind of thrown off if there's three rounds. And people are going, wait a minute, you know, why are we starting in week 14 the season's going to end in week 16 when there's two weeks left? And so you have that conundrum as a commissioner, like, wow, do I change the rules in week 13? Because there's still bye weeks. Like, how do you have a playoff start when week 13 and 14 are bye weeks? You know, you could have your, you know, Aaron Rodgers in week 13 out this week, you know? And so it, it's funny seeing that shuffle. So the leagues that I'm in where that happened, the commissioners were great, and they just let everybody know, hey, look, obviously I didn't realize 
they were starting this week. It wouldn't make any sense to start it when there's bye weeks. So if everybody's okay, let's go ahead and start it week 15 when all the bye weeks are done. And of course, everybody agreed to it. You know, I mean, anybody's sitting on the outside looking in and a game back, they're loving it. They're like, all right, I got another chance to make playoffs. So this is the fun, fun time of the year for sure. And then injuries, you know, I mean, this is, this, it's been a crazy year between COVID and injuries and suspensions, man. It, it's, it's been unbelievable. It has been. And the weird thing about it is that being in so many leagues like I am and probably you are as well, yeah. I'm almost immune to it because anything, any news that happens affects me negatively or positively every day. And so when um, something occurs to where, like I just traded for DeAndre Swift in two leagues, both dynasty, one league I gave up uh, Justin Fields, a first rounder in 2024, and a third rounder in I don't know whatever league. But and then I, I get and I ended up getting him and a couple other dudes. It doesn't matter. My point is that um, you know we're we're at the nitty gritty, and then he's out. You almost become immune to injuries when you're in so many leagues because you just kind of expect it. You know what I miss is the probable tag, right? So a player used to be doubtful, used to be questionable, and then it was probable, which means, hey, he's getting in limited practices. Odds are he's probably going to play. Questionable now is a combination of doubtful, questionable, and probable. You don't know, and some of these are until it's a Monday night football game, right? You've got a key running back that might be out like Aaron Jones. Let's say they would have played on Monday night last week. You didn't know he was playing until the day of. Well, if it's a Monday night game, who'd you have in your lineup? Did you gamble he was going to be able to play and have him in? Did you have a backup in? I mean, it, it's it's it, <laughs> questionable is like the worst thing in in football. You know, coaches they want you to have to scout for as many op- many different you know lineups as you possibly can. So it's all about throwing the other team off and saying, "Hey, is it Lamar Jackson or is it Brett Hundley?" I don't know. Figure it out. Scout them both. We're not saying right. anyone. So it's like gamesmanship. So as a fantasy player, you know, you want to be like, "Hey, what about us? You know, what about the fantasy guys that are relying on you guys to be you know open and transparent with your communication? Like they don't care about fantasy football." Right. It's so funny. We were talking before the show, like we always do. And one of the things we talked about is how you and I were a little confused on the schedule for this week on who was supposed to be on. So I reached out to the guest, the guest that I thought we were supposed to be on, but I just looked, we may, (laughs) I, (laughs) we may not have a guest at all this week because According to the message I sent him, he's on next week, December 8th. Um, but hopefully oh, – I was right. You were right. You were right. Yeah. Yeah. Holy smokes. So we'll see if we get anyone to pop in. Um, even if we don't, we can talk football all day, all night long, all the time, especially from two former football coaches who uh, spent a lot of time in the high school level. And I don't know about you, but high school football in California right now is down to the nitty-gritty. Last week we have – we have 14 divisions in the southern section, and there are sections that are – our southern section that I've always coached in and the one that I live in has over 600 schools. That's a state championship for a lot of teams or for a lot of states. But for us, they break it down to 14 divisions. So I was able to go see a local high school uh, state championship last week, and it was a lot of fun. And I was fortunate enough to be able to coach in those uh, when I was younger and uh, – Won a couple, but uh, how about you guys? How's uh, Arizona high school football going? Uh, it's going really well. Matter of fact, Liberty, where I coach high school football out here, they uh, 
one last week. They're, they got it. So in Arizona, they do 6A, 5A, 4A. <coughs> you know, some states do Division One, Division Two. 6A is the biggest division. It's the biggest schools with the most athletes and the best programs. So we're in 6A, and two years, three years ago, they started doing an open division. So they take the top eight teams from 4A, 5A, and 6A and have a big boy tournament. So they're literally taking the top eight teams based on strength of schedule, based on, you know, obviously rankings and those things. And so Liberty for the second year in a row, after winning the 6A state championship three years ago, they made the open for the first time last year, played against Chandler, who was the number five ranked team in the country, took into overtime and went for two instead of one to try to steal a win. And we ended up not converting. So we lost. Well, this year we have Chandler on our regular season schedule lost. Last week was the start of the playoffs. We beat Basha. It was the number three seed. We were the number six seed, and we beat them. And now we play Chandler at Chandler, which is the number, I think, 15-ranked team in the country. And then if we win that game, we play Hamilton, who is now the number 10-ranked team in the country because they beat Chandler earlier in the year. So it's getting down to, you know, we're playing nationally-ranked teams out here in Arizona, which is a huge deal. They're playing teams from California and Florida and, and, and Georgia and you know, and we're beating those teams, you know, in some cases. So Arizona football is on the map a lot more than it used to be. It's pretty fun. I, I covered a high school football game for the first time in a long time a couple of weeks ago, and there's nothing better. You talk about the joy of the game, the pureness of what football should be out there. And, yes, there's some who have aspirations to move on to the next level. But most players at the high school level are like I was, and that is – that last night when you're a senior, you know you're never going to strap it up again. And to be able to see those kids lay it all on the line week in and week out, it's a hell of a lot of fun. And I miss I miss it. I miss the Friday nights of being a high school football coach. The other stuff I don't miss so much. But everything that goes along to a Friday night in high school football, not too many things that are better. Man, I miss it all. I miss the film. I miss scouting teams for the following week or two weeks out. I miss getting with the players in film room and watching the, the, the upcoming week's opponent and asking them to grade the defensive backs as a receiver yeah. coach. Like, hey, what do you see? Is it a zone turn? Is it a man turn? Where are the safeties at? Where are your apex players at? What do you see? What routes do you like? And getting them to think like a coach and having that translate to Friday night football. Um, I miss all that. You know, I, I miss I miss the kids first and foremost, but I miss the lights and I miss, you know, ACDC blaring when, when the lions, come yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I miss right. all that stuff, man. It's such a great sport. And those kids play for the love of the game. It's not about money. Yes. They're trying to get a D one scholarship, but at that level, if you got a hundred kids on your team, 98 of them probably aren't going to play college football. Correct. So they're playing for the passion and the love of the game. And there's something very, very cool about that. It really is. It really is. Speaking of which, and I know you, so we both have been at the high school level. We yeah. both had kids that have been recruited at a high level. This last week in the college football with the coaching changes, for me, having a Lincoln Riley go to USC is huge for Southern California high school football and football in general because now kids hopefully are going to want to stay home. For too long, I've seen local athletes grow across the country because the guys like whoever, Clay Helton or whatever, just didn't really excite them enough to stay home. So I know Southern California is pretty excited about the changes that have happened over the last week. Well, it's a game changer. You, you talk about hitting a home run, and people have talked about 
USC, whether it was college football game day and Mark Sanchez and, and you know all these other guys, Kirk Herbstreet and uh, those guys that talk about it, it, it's such a neat thing to see a guy like Lincoln Riley and you go, is he ever going to win it in Oklahoma? The defense have never been up to speed to play against an SEC team and, and really compete for a national title, but they've come close. They have a great regular season. If they get in the college football playoff, they tend to get they get beat up pretty good. So now you have him go to USC, where now everybody wants to go to LA. It's the mecca, the media mecca that you know that New York, but you know New York's not exactly you know a football deal. It's more of a basketball place. But you have, I, I think it's 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 great for the game, and I think it's great for USC as an ASU fan. I'm like, crap, here we go. USC's going to be great for the next 10 years. What he's going to be able to do to recruit, there's already rumors about Caleb Williams going to follow him. OU players enter the transfer portal. He's going to take five or six top guys from Oklahoma. He's going to be able to recruit, you know, all the kids there in the state. And I think what's interesting is people get frustrated about, I can't believe these coaches are leaving with no notice. And it's like, hey, don't blame the coaches. Blame the NCAA for the early recruiting period. Because if you don't make that choice to hire your coach and say, hey, we need you here yesterday, there's seven or eight kids you might lose based on the current coaching staff versus who you're bringing in. What up and coming quarterback doesn't want to go play for a Lincoln Riley at USC and a talented recruit and how he develops quarterbacks, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts and Baker Mayfield. And, you know, he's a quarterback whisperer. He develops quarterbacks. He runs a great offense. He guys put up numbers and they're in the Heisman race. Like how do you not, if you're a play quarterback or you play a skill position or how do you not want to go play at USC? You absolutely Which already, and, I, and I'm not—I I am not a Debbie guy. I'm in a Debbie league, but I don't follow the stuff. I follow people who do. And when I say that, um, Malachi Nelson from Southern California—he is going to be—he uh, was literally committed to Oklahoma last weekend. As soon as the change was made, now he's staying home and going to USC. So we already see the ramifications of this move for USC. Yeah, because again, it, it's <clears throat> if you play the quarterback position, why are you going to that school? Because Lincoln Riley develops quarterbacks <clears throat> that compete for the Heisman, get drafted number one overall, and have NFL careers. So you're going to chase that. Why wouldn't you? No, I agree. I just, I it's just to be, and you know, it's weird is because my presence on Twitter, uh, anything I tweet is literally with no background information other than what I, tea leaves or whatever. And so throughout the whole season this year, after USC made a coaching change, I'd heard from a lot of high school coaches that I talked to on a regular basis that there was talk that with the struggles in Seattle, Pete Carroll was going to come home and come home to kind of right the ship and so forth. And so I tweeted a lot that, Pete Carroll is not out of the question of returning back to USC. But being a USC fan, I'd much rather have Lincoln Riley. I'd much rather have a 38-year-old coach who's already done what he's done and has the ability to go into a, a, a someone's home and bring a player like a Spencer Rattler, or bring a player like a Malachi Nelson we just talked about and get him into the program. So – I know me and many other Southern California fans are pretty excited about the hire. Yeah, and, and same thing for, you know, Brian Kelly going to um, LSU. You know, again, <coughs> decided to move on Ed Orgeron. Thank you for the national championship. This team is going in the right direction. We feel like we can do better. We want to compete, you know, for the national championship year in and year out. They go out and get a guy like Brian Kelly. There's, no, there's nothing more Brian Kelly has to prove at Notre Dame. 
He's taking Notre Dame as far as he can. At the end of the day, you're limited on who you can recruit. You're having to recruit people to go to Indiana in the cold. As much as I love Notre Dame and I love the gold helmets and I love the tradition, like guys that don't make grades or guys that, you know, aren't academically there or don't want to go play in the cold aren't going to go to Notre Dame. He's taking Notre Dame as far as he's going to take him. So now he's going to go to LSU. Now he's going to say, I can play the Georgias and the Alabamas with similar players that I can recruit that didn't qualify to play at Notre Dame. So I right. love the move for Brian Kelly. And what sucks is, you know, what happens later in the evening. He's got to send a text to all of his players because it gets the story gets out. And that's the downside. And, and I think, you know, look, we coached at a high level in high school, which, look, that's not D1. It's not college football. It's not the NFL. It's not that big of a deal. But at the same time, like, as a coach, you can kind of be like, that's the hardest part when I left football was not, not coaching anymore. It was the kids. Trust me, those coaches have built relationships with those kids. And it's difficult for them to make that decision. But when they're offering you two houses in L.A., a private jet for your family to travel, $250 million, you know, whatever it is, and I'm throwing the number out there as a random number, but, you know, you have a chance to go coach at one of the best universities in all of college football and build and continue to build on a legacy that others have created before you. How do you as a coach turn that down? I don't Nine out of ten coaches, and I only say nine out of ten, I just won't say ten out of ten, but would take that same job. They would do it the same exact way. It sucks for the players, but that's the reality with the early recruiting period in the NCAA. You have to get that coach now. You can't wait for the season to play out and then bring him. You've already missed out on seven or eight recruits you probably would have gotten had you had that coach sooner. You just don't have a choice. Now, And you're in Los Angeles. You're not yeah. in Oklahoma. And nothing against Oklahoma. I mean, I, I am moving and retiring in a Midwestern state because I want the slower-paced lifestyle. But to have the opportunity that he's getting there, you, you can't fault him. And it's unfortunate because Brian Kelly, the last, it's weird because Lincoln Riley is not being beat up in the media. Brian Kelly is being beat up in the media. And Brian Kelly having to work with the constrictions that he had at Notre Dame yeah. for so long, I mean, I can't fault that guy either. And he joked him. It was a joke last week. And he said, hey, I'm not interested in anything. But if someone gives me a $250 million offer, I got to talk to my wife because she's going to be pissed if I don't even at least think about it. Well, he didn't get $250 million. He still got a hell of a lot of money. And he also got the opportunity to bring in any kid theoretically that he wants that is near being a qualifier. So I have no – the system is made the way it is, and the system is, is as it is. So I, I, I can't fault these guys for chasing the money or, more importantly, chasing an opportunity to get the big ring. Yeah, I, I think that's the one thing I learned a long time ago is it's not, it's not my job to discuss how another man should make his money. As long as it's honest, it's legal, and it's ethical. <laughs> if he wants to take a better job, puts a better situation for his family, at a better university, they're going to group better players. You know, how do you fault the guy for making that move, for making his life better for him and his family? You know? Yeah, I mean, and I would never – it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> similar to – I think the older you get in life, the less judgmental you get. And for me, I, I just like, hey, man, I, I can do what you got to do, whatever's best for you. But let's move on to uh, some pretty big NFL news. And NFL news is just – Kind of let's talk about what happened last week. Dallas, your team is struggling. And whether it be last year, they struggled with an immense amount of injuries with Dak and 
virtually the entire offensive line. This year, we're looking at two strong pieces on the defensive side, and then C.D. Lamb coming up with a concussion, and then Cooper coming up with COVID and everything else he's been dealing with. So they lost a few games last week, and then they lost last week 36-33 to to Las Vegas. As a true diehard Cowboys fan, how worried are you about them and with these recent lack of success? Well, I'll say this. I was concerned with where the Eagles were playing up until this last weekend. I thought Jalen Hurts was progressing. I was very outspoken in the offseason. I had him just outside the top 10 in dynasty rankings, and people thought I was crazy because of, you know, the rushing ability. And and they were right. You know, he, he's outperformed expectations. But having only played six or seven games last year, whatever it was, I wasn't ready to, to crack with a new guy coming in, an offensive coordinator, wanted to see what that offense looked like, coming to error on the side of caution. But – you know, the Eagles losing a game against the Giants and not playing well. Hurts really struggling in that game. Um, what Washington is now doing, now that Antonio Gibson's finally getting the volume, I think he should have been getting all year. Um, well, I'm more concerned about Washington than I am Philadelphia right now. But uh, I think Dallas is very lucky to be in the NFC least, right? You're 7-4. and four. You have a very easy schedule the rest of the way. But you have to play Washington twice. you got to play Philadelphia again. Those divisional games can be tough, but – I don't make any excuses. I mean, the, the reality is, yeah, you can say, hey, we didn't have Randy Gregory. We didn't have DeMarcus Lawrence. Now we're losing Tristan Hill for a game because of a stupid suspension. Amari Cooper, you know, was out for two games due to COVID. See, Lamb got a cushion, wasn't there in the second half. You can say all that stuff. But, look, there's other teams battling the same thing. Right. You know, and I think the reality is, I will say this, from an offensive perspective, having been an offensive coordinator, there's all in the NFL, and I think if you're a casual fan, you see a receiver run a route. And the quarterback, you know, sails the ball. Sometimes that's based on the DB's leverage. He's expecting that 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 receiver to run a comeback route, not a curl route. So the ball gets thrown to the outside, and receiver. But it looks like a bad throw by the quarterback. I think that's the one thing when you have a guy like Amari Cooper and Ceedee Lamb both out, and you've got Cedric Wilson and you've got Noah Brown and, and, and Malik Turner. Those are not guys that are seeing the type of volume. And that that have that timing down. They're not running with the ones for, you know, all the reps in practice. And so there is something to be said for the volume. What I was surprised by is that Dallas was a team that was running for 200 yards a game, 180 yards a game when they were winning six in a row. And right. they haven't been able to run the football. They had not been able to run the football. And, you know, Zeke's got the knee injury. I get it. But that team with Tyron Smith back, Zach Martin back, Lyle Collins with the start this week with Steele out. That team should be able to run the football a lot better than it is. And so I'm a little surprised we're not seeing more run volume than we're seeing. Well, let's just hope it's a hiccup and things get back to normal pretty quick as far as you being a Dallas fan. I'll tell you what. Uh, I am becoming a bigger and bigger fan of Mac Jones every week of this yeah. NFL season. Um, I draft him a lot in my SF league. Rookie leagues uh, drafts last year. I got him in the second round. And that guy just more important, just as a fan of football, he's pretty damn good. And, and Bill Belichick has got a good thing going there. And then they just upset a Tennessee team. I realized Henry and they didn't have AJ Brown. And they don't have that Julio Jones, but they still have a rookie quarterback playing football there. And, and, and they just put together a pretty good win. And here they are leading the AFC East. Not a lot of teams, not a lot of people projecting them to lead at this point in the season. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to Colin Cowher and I heard it somewhere else too, but 
Uh, and there's also the books about the Patriots. I'm a big book reader when it comes to like, you know, leadership, especially in sports and whether it was Lou Holtz or, you know, Vince Lombardi books and, and stuff about the, the Patriots have three books, Patriot Reign, the Patriot Way, and I can't remember the name of the third, but there's a book <coughs> where Bill Belichick actually talks about what he looks for in certain players, the height, the weight, the length of the arms, the size of the hands, and what type of players he looks for. And when you get to the quarterback portion, he talks about, I don't need a guy. It's not about athleticism. I yeah, everybody right now is chasing that quarterback that can move the pocket, they can run. And, hey, there's a huge part, especially for fantasy football. We love it. But he's looking for the guys that have an extremely high football IQ, that he can draw a play on the on the erase on the uh, funny to say dry erase board. Nowadays, we've got so much better technology. But you can draw a play, erase it, and that kid can get up and draw the exact same play and almost say verbatim what you just said. And the <laughs> intangibles that he looked for in Tom Brady are very similar to what he looked for in Mac Jones. They're very, very similar in that regard. He has – a specific type of quarterback he's looking for. This book was written in the early 90s. This is not something that was written three years ago. This is something that was written recently. Um, so he knows what he's looking for. And so was he lucky that Mac Jones fell to 15? Absolutely. But at the same time, here we are. They get guys yeah. back and popped it out on the defensive side of the ball. They can flip field position. They're one of the top defenses in the NFL. They're good on special teams. They don't make mistakes. It's another quarterback, high football IQ, doesn't turn the ball over, can make all the throws you need him to make. It, 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 it's like – you don't want to rush, say, Tom Brady 2.0. Like, look, that, that's way too much. Sure, but sure. There are some similarities in terms of rookie year, although one was a first-round draft pick, one was a six-round draft pick. But when you look at intangibles and the reasons why they drafted Tom Brady, what he did his last two years at Michigan, there's a lot of – there's some similarities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the similarities mostly are just being able to manage the game yeah. and being able to be comfortable in wherever and whatever situation comes his way. We're going to move on real quick because we got our guests coming in a second. And I'd like to touch upon a couple games for this week coming up. But I got a delivery. Someone's at my door. I'm going to walk away. But why don't you kind of talk about the impressive win by Green Bay traveling and beating the Rams last week? 38 or 36 to 28. Be right back. Hey, you got it. Yeah. Hey, that was, that was a phenomenal game. I mean, you look at what, what that game meant coming into it and how that game played out. Um, you know, the Packers are a team that look Aaron Rodgers right now has got to be, you know, for me, we talk about Tom Brady and you know, they got a big win in Indianapolis against the Colts 38, 31 uh, regular season. Lenny decided to show up, but I think what Aaron Rodgers is doing with the toe, with all the things that happened in the off season, being a good Rams team, went out and got Von Miller, went out and got Odell Beckham, and granted they lost, um, you know, Robert Woods. But I think what they are doing um, in in Green Bay, that, that's my that's my favorite in the NFC, and, and this is a team that can go to the Super Bowl. This is a team that is playing at the highest level. I think Aaron Rodgers moved himself into the front runner in the MVP conversation right now. Um, I know it's tough, so a lot of Tom Brady fans out there, but I just think what he is doing in Green Bay is, is absolutely outstanding. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, another game that, that Brett and I talked about uh, before we came on was, hey, what's going on, you know, with with the Buccaneers-Colts game? You know, you have the Colts that came in and, and are running the football extremely well. Jonathan Taylor's playing extremely well. Yes, he was held to less than 100 yards. I think it was the first game in, in nine games. He didn't have 100 yards rushing. Um, I think that the Colts are peaking at the right time. But what a, what a big win for, for Tampa Bay. Uh you know, with the Buccaneers, you know, that was a great game. 
You saw the Patriots show up and shellac the Titans. You know, the Titans are out. They've lost a lot of players. But I think that what, what the Patriots are doing in New England is is absolutely outstanding. We just talked about Mac Jones. Um, we talked about Ramondre Stevenson. And Damon Harris is now back and healthy. They've got Brandon Bolden coming out of the backfield to play that James White role. You've got the defensive players back from last season. That defense is as good as any defense in the NFL right now. So there's a lot of things that still have to shake out, uh, I think, for the rest of the season. And, you know, one thing that, that we talked about, too, is, is Christian McCaffrey. You know, here he is now out for the season. Um, Panthers are going to try to make a late run. Ran into a, a tough Miami team that's, that's also peaking at the right time. So, you know, here you go. Uh, they didn't show up. You know, Miami did. Tua Tagovailoa is playing extremely well right now. He's yeah. Playing. I mean, he that team has gotten beaten up more by that but by that guy, but he has played really well over the last few weeks. And you bring up Christian McCaffrey. Holy smokes. What are you doing as a Christian McCaffrey owner in uh, Dynasty? Are, are you – you got to be worried about this constant injury issue. So I've only got him on a few teams because everybody has him as a 1.01, right? So I'm always concerned with guy coming off an injury <laughs> – what is that? What is the offense going to look like this year with Sam Darnold coming in? Uh, the talent is obvious, but you know, I wasn't willing to take him at 1.01. If I can get him at 1.05, then I feel like there's something there. There weren't a whole lot of drafts who's available. So Scott Fishbowl, I got him at 1.06. <clears throat> and I don't normally handcuff my own running backs, but with Christian McCaffrey coming off an injury, I went out. I liked Sheba Hubbard coming out of Oklahoma State. I felt like he had the speed and the ability in that offense. We look at what Mike Davis did last year, and you look at what Mike Davis did in Atlanta this year. Mike Davis is not a great football player. Shelby Hubbard's an upgrade. I felt like, hey, if the opportunity presents itself and seems he misses games, you got to grab Shelby Hubbard. So I, I was big on, on making sure I got him, and so that that's played out well. Unfortunately, they have a, a bye this week, so I don't get either one. Well, I mean, I, I can't really complain too much about the Scott Fishbowl because I mean, but. <laughs> I digress. Let's move on. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest this week? Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty damn excited about who we got on. Yeah, hey, we're, we're super excited to have Josh Larkey on. He is absolutely phenomenal. I've been following Josh for a long time, and, and you know, I follow his TikToks now. He's all over social media. He's not afraid to take the shirt off and talk about fantasy football. you got to love that. He's, uh, he's over at Roto Underworld, does a lot of things with coding. He's absolutely outstanding, one of my favorite follows in the space. Josh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, you guys. I'm excited to be here. Talk some talk some football with the two of you. And also, I'll note the the Redlands connection that we have. I think you're the other Redlands alumni that I that I found so far on Twitter in this fantasy football space. So we got we got to rep our our small two thousand person college. Well, it's yeah, a bulldog, we right? You gotta love the Bulldogs. Yeah, we, we went with the most generic mascot possible. So well, I went to Fresno State and I'm a bulldog as well. So all three oh, of us there bulldogs, we go. You can't you can't be mad. Hey Josh, before we get started, I owe you an, a big an apology. And that is that you weren't on the schedule until next week. So if you noticed that today and said, Oh shit, I, I guess I'm on this week and you cleared your calendar, I truly appreciate it because <laughs> Coach Bruce told me today is like I don't think that was who was supposed to be on. I'm like, oh, shit, I hope he shows up. So thank you for being here. Yeah, I saw that too. I was like, oh, wow. Because when you, when I got the show sheet, I thought, wow, these are the, this is the most on top of it podcast I've ever been a part of. I'm getting the show sheet eight days in advance. And then you, it was like, oh, you're coming on tonight, right? And 
I was free. So I thought, I mean, yeah, let's, let's talk some football. Luckily I work from home. My schedule is pretty flexible. And I was like, of course I'll just bump this up. I've got nothing going on. So we thought we'd yeah. just throw you a curveball, man. And just be like, Hey, look, we're gonna start eight days early, but then we're going to see how, how well you do on the fly. And we're going to be like, Hey, an hour before the show, by the way, Josh Larkey's going to be yeah, you're on, you're on. Hey, so let's just jump into it. And, and, you know, Coach Bruce and I always talk about how we're not analysts. We're not you. We're not anybody we bring on here. And with that being said, what we are is consumers of information that people like you put out there. And Player Profiler is one of the best. And I'd like you to kind of share how you got to the point that where you're at now, that where you're pretty much running the show as far as analytics go on that site. So how did, how did that come about? So it's actually, it's a funny story. Uh, so I, I went to college, University of Redlands. I studied econ and I always really loved sports throughout my entire life, playing sports. I loved collecting baseball cards as a kid. I just like sports numbers. And it was junior year of college. I did a project where I looked at major league baseball and the economy and the big 2007 to 2009 recession. Did a little bit of really, really basic stats analysis for it. And I was just hooked. And the the 10 page paper for that class turned into a 50 page honors thesis. And I just couldn't get enough of writing about something involving sports in a data driven way. And when I was trying to look at the, these quote unquote sports analytics jobs, I realized that I didn't really know how to code and that that was actually really important to really break into the industry uh, in kind of a, like it's been done before. This is, this is a real path to do it kind of way, because the way that I was trying to, that I thought I was going to be able to do it where I was like, Oh, Hey, I can just stare at some Excel numbers. You should hire me. I was going to be getting out competed by someone who had been coding for three, four five years. So I went to UT Austin. I got a master's there in business analytics after college. And it was a couple months before graduation. I went to a a sports analytics conference. And it was, it was basically just to network, uh, hear some panelists, meet some people. And I'm just, I'm chronically late to everything. I showed up late to the football analytics panel. I had to sit in the back of the room and I'm this sweaty grad school student in my really nice outfit, which I didn't like wearing. <laughs> and the guy next to me, uh, he is in just the most casual clothes he, he's on his computer. He looks like he's doing something important. I sit down next to him. It ends up being Matt Kelly, who runs Player Profiler and who started it eight years ago. Okay. And on the football analytics panel was Teddy Bruschi and some uh, stats people. And Bruschi said something that was just like, it was out of left field for an analytics conference. And Matt and I hadn't really talked much. And Matt just turns to me in the back of the room quietly and he goes, Teddy Bruschi? is a real dumbass, isn't he? And it just like, it took me by surprise. I chuckled. We started up a conversation and he found out that I was in grad school, wanted to make a little money. I started doing some coding work for him in the site. And this was back in the beginning of 2018. And I had uh, some, I had two different jobs in the baseball industry before this, but always stayed in contact with Matt was always doing work for him. And then when I was actually COVID furloughed, from uh, one of my, from a, a business analytics role with the the Padres baseball team, turns out if you're doing attendance projections and you project no attendance due to COVID for the 2020 season, you get fired. 
because there's no use for you. So, <laughs> so I, I reached out to Matt and was like, Hey, uh, I have a lot more free time. I can do even more work. And then just slowly kind of the two of us sort of built a full-time role where I've taken over pretty much all of the stats operations for uh, the site and a lot of the, the backend stats and generating those. So it's been a ton of fun. So that's kind of the, the ultimate uh, long-winded, but also like concise sure. version of how I'm ultimately the director of analytics for a, a fantasy football website. Yeah, that, that site is outstanding. I think it's one of the first sites I use is player profiler. And what you guys do in putting that site together is, is phenomenal, especially you start getting into rookie grading and you start getting into the scores, the combine, and all the other tools you have on that site. But how long have you been in the fantasy football like, as a player? So that's actually a great question. Very, very short. I, I started playing fantasy football in grad school. Okay. I, I'd be, I've been a football fan my whole life, and – I just was always afraid that fantasy would make me enjoy the game less. So I said, I'm not going to play fantasy football because I love rooting for players. I like, I like rooting for my San Diego chargers. Why would I ever want to jeopardize that enjoyment with fantasy football? So I was always hyper aware of all the numbers. I did my own football research totally for fun, nothing fantasy related. And then uh, started playing in grad school and uh, just kind of snowballed from there. I actually think my lack of fantasy football experience kind of helps differentiate my work. So there's def there's the obvious drawbacks, which is that I just have less playing experience. If I've only been doing it for like four and a half years. Sure. But I think one of the pros is that I came in with just sort of this blank slate open mind and that I've kind of been shaped in large part by my own research and by the work done before me from other people at sites like player profiler. So it's been kind of cool to come from this baseball analytics background where baseball is so incredibly advanced with analytics to football, where it's just the wild West in that, I mean, you, you still have coaches where it's fourth and one and they're 30 yards from scoring and they go for the 50 yard field goal or they even punt sometimes. Yeah. So like football is just, you would never see this type of stuff in baseball. Like th this type of uh, just clearly the wrong decision being made analytically. So I think that's one of the fun parts about football. And it's such an interesting challenge because in baseball, like nothing I was doing was all that innovative. It's like, Oh, you're just, you're just working for the team. You're doing what every other team does. But with football, almost every project that I do is new and unique in some fashion. And I think that that's really exciting and that it kind of helps that I don't have this incredibly rigorous background of 10 to 20 years playing where I'm very set and this is how I'm supposed to play. So it's been kind of interesting on the fly developing strategies in that sense. I like that because you're very similar to the people you're reaching. You know what I mean? I mean, because most people that are going to play a profile aren't on Twitter. Most people are just going there to get a quick look and try and get ready for a draft or whatever it may be. And I bring that up only in the sense that because you're kind of, you're, you're going off of what works for you, it seems to, you know, kind of make more sense for us who haven't been doing it very long either. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you is that when you talk about developing uh, new strategies, this summer, holy smokes, Josh, being a Twitter guy who's on there all day long, the number of conversations regarding your pieces about stacking and um, best ball and so forth 
it, it got pretty heated. And, and tell us about why you think stacking a quarterback with somebody else in best ball and, and all that whole research you did, why is that the best way to go? So just if someone hears the word stack and is like, what is a stack? Stacking is essentially uh, you want your quarterback and one of your receivers, tight ends to be on the same team. So for example, Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs, if they are both on your fantasy roster, that's a stack because they're both on the Buffalo bills. And what from my research and actually we'll just start theoretically. So I think Theoretically, why stacking makes sense is that it's a really good way to limit how many different things you need to get correct in your analysis because you're chasing correlated outcomes season long and week to week. And the idea behind that is that, yes, you you may be able in your fantasy draft to say, in round five, I want this guy. In round six, I want this guy. In round seven, I want this guy. And that's fine. We're going to have some hits. We're going to have some misses but we're actually better in many ways at projecting which offense we think will be good. So at the start of this season, I mean, it's, it's not breaking news or anything, but I think we all kind of thought the Buccaneers, the bills, that these would be really good offenses and that there would likely be multiple fantasy relevant players from that offense. So one thing in best ball where you don't set a roster each week and whatever team you drafted, the highest scoring players at each position each week, give you points is, I would love I would love taking Josh Allen in the fourth round and then in rounds 10 and 11 back to back taking Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders with the idea being I don't know which guy's going to get the yards each week but I think the Bills are going to be a good offense there's probably going to be some 20 fantasy point weeks from both of these guys why not take both I already have Josh Allen and that way Josh Allen has a big game one or both of Beasley and Sanders probably have a decent game. One of them probably caught a long touchdown as well. Now I have at least two players in my lineup. And uh, the the way to think about it, uh, another way would be, let's say that I take Keenan Allen in the third round of a draft. The seventh round comes along, and I I know that a lot of people will say, oh, I took Keenan Allen. I don't want to take Justin Herbert in the seventh round. That's too much risk with the Chargers. I already have Allen. Why would I take Herbert? And that their idea is that they're minimizing risk by taking only one charger, which, uh, yes, you're minimizing risk. But if you think about every fantasy football league, the payouts are top heavy. The glory of winning is via winning. If you get fourth place out of 12 teams, you're not getting high fives. No one's like, oh, you had a really strong fantasy season getting fourth place out of 12. You want to get first or second place. That's where the money is. That's where the glory is. And you just feel better about your team when you're in first or second. So it's not really a minimizing risk equation. You should be thinking about it as I want, if I have a good team, I want to hit a home run. And that if you take Keenan Allen in the third round, how does Keenan Allen exceed ADP? He has a really good season. He has a lot of yards. He has a lot of touchdowns, which doesn't that inherently mean then that Justin Herbert also has a good season. So therefore, if you take Allen, why not take Herbert in round seven and have extra risk, but also extra reward because we're not chasing these 50-50 outcomes. You're not playing for fourth, fifth, sixth place. You're playing for first or second place. Therefore, take on that extra risk. 
take the correlated outcome where if one guy does well, it's a good chance the other guy also does well. So I think that's a kind of a good way to think about it is like, yes, Allen Robinson has been a total fantasy bust, but if you took him in round three instead of Keenan Allen and then took Herbert round seven, think about how there's no correlation between Allen Robinson and Herbert. Allen Robinson has been a total bust. Justin Herbert has not. Okay, let's say you had Allen Robinson, Justin Herbert. Are you high-fiving yourself that you didn't also take Fields or Dalton and double down on the Bears? Or are you like, oh, it doesn't matter. My team's screwed. My third-round pick has done nothing all season. That's why you might as well take on that risk because if you go and minimize risk and you only have one bust instead of two busts, it doesn't matter. Your season's probably not looking so hot either way. So that's why you really want to chase less than the 50-50 outcome in that if all the money's tied up in the top two spots of your league and there's 12 teams, you want to chase like a, a top 15% outcome and be one of those top two teams then rather than saying, I want to just minimize risk. And that's yeah. why stacking is so important. I'm huge on stacking. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm big on it too. And, you know, I think that, I think what's interesting about stacking too is not trying to be so, pivotal and trying to stack like i'm trying to get dak prescott and i'm trying to get cd lamb or amari cooper if i can't get him i'm okay with michael gallup as a wide receiver three in an offense it should move the ball um so I'm, I'm big on it plus i get that gratification of late in the game i'm down seven dak throws a throws a touchdown to michael gallup i'm getting 10 to 12 points in, in one swing plus the yards plus the reception yeah right? that's the other thing is the the math behind it that yeah it's big. if you if you have uh if you have Justin Herbert and Stefan Diggs, yeah. Stefan Diggs catches a touchdown pass. We have no idea if Herbert threw a touchdown pass for four points. But if you have Allen, Keenan Allen, Herbert gets a four-point touchdown. Allen gets a six-point touchdown, 10 fantasy points for TDs plus the yards. And that the yes. math, it's just overwhelmingly in that direction, like you said. Love it. Yeah, I do too. And the funny thing is that the, what I like about Coach and I is that we don't claim to know anything. And so with that being said, with Player Profiler, I joined all of that stuff last year. One of the questions I have is if I'm looking at, like, let's just say, Kenny, now what, what profile number do you think is most important for me to look at? Is it a 40-yard dash? Is it, is it the speed score? Is it the burst score? What, what, what am I looking at when I go to your site and I see all these numbers, what should I really be looking for when I see it? So I think it, it just kind of depends on the player. I would love to say, like, here's a magic number. In if position, you look right? at this, this predicts fantasy success. You're golden. Right. If if we had that magic number, then th why would well, – I would win 100% of my leagues. Sure. I would – like I, I would be rolling in millions of dollars of cash if it was that simple. I would just enter all high stakes leagues and take them down. Cause I was like, I knew this number, yeah. unfortunately not that simple. However, I think that there are different things that we can point to that can help out with the profile. So one of them, for instance, is that we know that with running backs, one aside from draft capital and that if you're drafted in the first or second round of the NFL draft, you have a longer leash. You're probably going to get more carries. In addition to that, you want big, fast running backs. And that that's really important for the guys that are staying out on the field and having long NFL careers. 
And we kind of saw that materialize this year with the 49ers and that you could actually just kind of directly compare Trey Sermon and Elijah Mitchell. Yeah. And if you just think football wise about the scheme that San Francisco runs, it's a zone running scheme. We know that they want really fast running backs and you can say, okay, historically it looks like they've prioritized really fast guys. Think Raheem Mostert, Tevin Coleman. These guys are burners. Their vision is just, it doesn't even matter what their vision is. They're just told to be a one cut runner and you're going this way. Okay. Elijah Mitchell runs a four, three at his pro day. Trey Sermon runs a four, six at his pro day player profile. You can look and that can just be one number where already you could, you know, a little bit about football, you know, the Niners really like smaller, faster running backs for that team specifically. And your, your red alert goes off and you go, wow. Okay. I know they trade up for Trey Sermon, but also he looks nothing like every other successful running back there. And you look at Elijah Mitchell's profile and the first thing you see is, holy crap, this guy ran a 4-3 at his pro day. So that's an example, I guess, where you could use one metric. But the way that I generally like to use it is I'll try and – I like being able to tell a story. And that you can look at several metrics when you scroll down to their metrics section and really get a good sense of what this player is doing. Or if you flip from the metrics to the game log section in that area of the profile – you can get a really good idea of how a player's doing. So I'll actually, I have David Montgomery pulled up because I was doing some research on him earlier. And if I scroll down on his player profiler page, (laughs) and let's just say that I'm looking at Montgomery and I go, is he a bell cow? Is he, I know, I, I know he's not the most explosive runner. He's not the sexiest player in fantasy football. He had the good stretch last year, but Khalil Herbert was really good, right? Right. Is Montgomery doing well? And you can look at his metrics section and go, wow, he has a 77.5% snap share this year. Number two among running backs. Wow. He has uh, 13.1 weighted opportunities per game. And then you can start looking at other running backs and go, wow, weighted opportunities is basically just trying to translate carries and targets into fantasy points. And you go, wow, that's actually, whoa, that's, that's kind of good. He has... He has 21 red zone touches, three per game. I want a running back who's getting three red zone touches a game. And that's what you can kind of do is look at these stats. And for example, if I looked and it's like David Montgomery has a 46% snap share. All right. He's not a bell cow. Maybe Khalil Herbert's bleeding into his work. So that's kind of how I like to look at it is I'll try and look at three, four, five metrics. And that usually you can tell a pretty good story from any four or five. And that if my story was trying to be Montgomery sucks, he's not a bell cow. We don't want him in fantasy. It'd be really hard to justify that. If I see that he has the number two snap share per game and a 77.1% running back team opportunity share number five in the NFL per game. Wow. Montgomery's a workhorse. It's not the best offense, but we know at least in this offense, Montgomery is getting pretty much every touch. It's it, man, you bring up so many great points, man. That, that was so good. There's so many ways to go with it because we can talk about Elijah Mitchell versus Trey Sermon, draft capital versus metrics that fit the system, and that's kind of what coach approach is about. Brett and I talk, it's like bringing real football to fantasy football, right? Like, you can look at draft capital, you can also look at the metrics and the player and the system he came from and say, Who is a better scheme fit? But the reality was, you could get Elijah Mitchell at much better value based on ADP. And he's, he's a better athlete that's a little bit quicker. So if you're ahead of the curve on that, 
hopefully you already knew Elijah Mitchell was a better fit and you went that route, waited while everybody else was drafting Trey Sherman a little bit earlier. But I, I want to ask you, and this is kind of going off the cusp because you brought up such a great point. There's a big debate on Twitter right now. I don't know if you've seen it or not. I'm a big Cowboys guy. I get it. But Tony Pollard versus Zeke Elliott, I think is a prime example of real football versus fantasy football. And you look at Tony Pollard and limited number of touches and say, well, he's averaging 5.3 yards per carry, but he's only got 100 touches. You look at Zeke and he's got almost double the touches and he's at 4.5 yards per carry. But he's getting all the short yardage in the goal line situation. It's a one-yard run for a touchdown. Of course, his average per carry is going to be lower. Right. So I, I think it's interesting you look at what he does in pass pro, what he does in, in the passing game from a blocking perspective. And so you have to look at the entire picture and go, I love Tony Pollard. The guy's got an immense talent. He's a great change of pace. He's 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 the NFL's version of Thunder and Lightning right now. Like you have a Tiki Barber and Ron Dane with the Giants back in the day. I think you get a little bit of that with the Cowboys. You know, Zeke's going to be smash mount. He's going to drop a helmet. He's going to carry you for three. Whereas Pollard's going to be the guy that's going to get to the outside, take one cut and be going for 60. Where yeah, are you at with that? Because I think that's such a great debate on Twitter because it's volume versus metrics. Well, Pollard's a better athlete. He's quicker. He's, he's faster. But Zeke Elliott's the guy that gets the volume, right? Zeke's going to have another year of 50-plus receptions. He's going to get – he's getting the goal line carry, which, which translates to touchdown. Yeah, so on this mm-hmm. yeah, on this debate, I lean Zeke. I think yeah, me too. Th- this is clearly the running back that Dallas prefers. He yeah. has the draft capital. He has the contract. He has years of sustained production and the also the ability to hold up under immense volume season after season. And yes, Tony Pollard has been so efficient, but you, like you said, it's a lot easier to be efficient on fewer touches. And that one thing that you see with almost every running back is the more touches they get, the less efficient right. they get. Yeah. One of my favorites is Justin Jackson. I think he averaged seven yards per carry a couple seasons ago. And a lot of people were like, oh my goodness. You got to get him the ball more, right? What a sleeper. We, he's averaging seven yeah. yards a carry. You, He should just, he should touch the ball on every play if he's getting seven yards a carry. And what do you know since that like 30 carry or whatever it was season two, two years ago when he had seven yards carry, he's averaged significantly fewer yards per carry since then. And that we always want to get rid of these small sample sizes and that sure, Per touch, Pollard, way more efficient. But it's also a much smaller sample size, and it's also much easier if you're only asked to touch the ball a few times a game. If we flip the role and say, hey, Pollard, we want you to have the Zeke pass-blocking workload, run as many routes as Zeke, because I think most people don't realize Ezekiel Elliott is a total usage monster. Week 12, no running back ran more routes than Ezekiel Elliott. I, I know people are like, oh, Pollard, he was a receiver in college. This is the guy that gets all the targets. Well, Zeke had a ton of targets this past week, too. He ran 32 routes, which is more than many receivers run in any game. And that if we if we flip it and go, all right, Pollard, you're going to run 32 routes. You're going to pass block on every down. You're going to get those tough carries up the middle. I like to think Pollard would be significantly less efficient than he is now. And that if you gave Zeke change of pace role, no, Zeke would be so efficient. And I think that's what some people don't realize is that, yes, when you just do these one-for-one comparisons and it's a small sample to a large sample, large workload, small workload, it can often be kind of a trap. And it's just like with some of these like field stretcher receivers. I think that's another one I see it with. His that's people. a great one, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Have you seen his yards per target? This guy's an animal. We need to 
he's averaging 12 yards per target. You should just target him on every single play. And it's like, well, the reason he's averaging 12 yards per target is he's actually God awful at getting open. Yeah. He just happens to be fast. So the only time he's targeted, it's like, yeah, no shit. He's open 30 yards down the field and they chucked a bomb to him. Of course, per target, he's going to be efficient. The reason that he's not getting more routes and why he's not getting more targets is sorry. He just wasn't open other than those two plays per game. So I think the, some of these small sample things are, it's definitely an advantage that I think we have when we can spot them and go, okay, I'm not going to put all my eggs in a basket. Pollard might be one of the highest upside backup running backs in the entire NFL. Yeah. But any given week, Ezekiel Elliott will probably score more fantasy points. Yeah, I mean, all of it's a guessing game. And we go to people like you so we don't have to guess as much. And I bring that up because a guy that I was really high on from, I have a lot, a lot of uh, teams that have him on my team. And one of your podcasts, I think it might have been one of your first ones this season, was on LaVisca Chenault. And I listened to it not because – I listened to it because it was yours. But the first thing that I noticed in listening to it is you tell a hell of a story. You're very – I mean, I was sucked in right from the start. The second reason why I listened to it is because he's someone I was high on a long time. And you bring up all the factors on why you thought he was going to be great. What are you doing now when it hasn't quite been there? Do you blame it on, you know, the fact that Trevor Lawrence is a rookie? What, how do you how do you evaluate your process when a LaVisca isn't doing exactly what LaVisca should have been or what with many people thought he would do? So with Chenault, part of why I was really high on him was – we just don't see a lot of players like him. And with how physically talented he is, I knew that this is the type of player that can have this just ridiculous ceiling. If we think back to like a Demarius Thomas, I made that comparison a few times where I said, Demarius Thomas was never the best route runner. He was just bigger than everyone that covered him. Yeah. He was a monster after the catch and he was really fast. And if you get the ball in this guy's hands and then he learns receiver on the fly at a higher level in the NFL, he can be an elite fantasy asset without needing that polish. Same with DK Metcalf. No one would say that DK Metcalf is the most polished receiver out there. In fact, they said everything different prior to the draft. Correct. And with I was a big LaVisca guy too. And I still think there's an opportunity for him. I still feel like he's not being used. Properly. I think he's a guy that can take direct snaps and wildcat. I think he's a guy who can run screen game. He's a guy that can, you know, be that guy that gets open in space and create some some run after catch. So, from an offensive coordinator perspective, it's so frustrating to watch them play and feel like, especially with Travis Etienne went down. I thought, now this is a great opportunity now for Chanel to really be that guy that gets a running back carries, gets to play in some wildcat, and gets to be that 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 guy. But man, they just they just don't use him like that. Yeah, I think the issue with Chanel, which has been more exposed this year, I I didn't realize. As, as a rookie, he was he was mostly a slot guy. Yeah. This year, for some reason, they've really tried to have him. They they've really tried to to force this. Uh, you need to be an outside receiver in this offense, and that's clearly not who he is. When when I look at the stats that we have, when we look at him versus man coverage compared to zone, this is not a receiver that's winning it versus man coverage. He's not separating in that. Yes, maybe he could he could do okay on some contested catches because he's so big and athletic. 
But at the end of the day, it's it's a rookie quarterback. And still, like, he's a receiver. You're supposed to be open. And that I can say all I want, like, oh, he's huge. Just give him the contested catch. I'm sure if he makes it, he can break off a long run after the catch. But at the end of the day, he has to get open. He he really struggles to get open against man coverage. He needs to be playing in the slot more. But also, there yeah. is a flaw with Chenault, which I'm not – I don't know if I was – overlooking that too much over summer or if it just hadn't we didn't have enough data really there were there were a lot of factors going on but with Chenault one thing I talked about was that the reason I liked him was that after the 2021 season he was either going to be a top 10 dynasty receiver or outside the top 50 receivers in dynasty and that that's the type of profile I like where yes it's high risk but it's also high reward in this case it, it looks like a miss I do have some type of hope for next year when Lawrence is no longer a rookie. Hopefully he can be a full-time slot receiver and they can get other weapons in this offense because, I mean, Marvin Jones and LaVisca Chenault is just, this is a hard-to-watch offense when the, when that's the weaponry with a bad offensive line and Trevor Lawrence and it's just terrible offensive play calling and usage. I noted it in a Twitter thread I, I was working on tonight. Carlos Hyde ran more routes than James Robinson this past week. Why, why is Carlos Hyde getting the pass down work? That makes absolutely no sense. There's been a lot of boneheaded decisions, just like let's put Agnew in the slot and have LaVisca out wide. But I do think with uh, Chenault, the, the concern is that he he's more one-dimensional than you ideally like in a, a receiver that you can help build an offense around. I think there's still hope if you put him in the big slot role and just let him feast against linebackers and some of these slot corners. But... It's unfortunate. I did think, I thought there was potential before the season that he could win on the outside, potentially. It looks like that's just not not going to happen. Not this year, maybe future years, but I think the ceiling has definitely come down for him. And sure. I'm not just totally out on him for next year and in Dynasty, but there some of the luster has worn off now that we know more about him. With more NFL data, we know he can't win against man. We know that... Uh, Jacksonville clearly doesn't always think that he's an every snap receiver. So there, there are concerns there and why like ultimately one of my biggest like misses for fantasy would be uh, touting Chenault in the, the seventh, eighth, ninth round of drafts where yeah, at that point you want to lock in a flex play and that if you took Chenault, he's not a flex play. He's right. either on waivers or on your bench. So definitely a miss for this season. With that being said, you talk about misses. And one of the things that I have become more aware of is the process. And I'll give you an example. I made a bunch of trades in the offseason for Cam Akers. I felt like what we saw last year, and I felt like people that I trust who were also very high in on him. I mean, you can't predict that he's going to tear his freaking Achilles three weeks before the season. But my point is that um, if you have a process, you go through it, a miss like LaVisca, I mean, you just got to take it as it is and move on, right? Yeah, I'll give you an example, actually, of a a miss that I had preseason where I should have been better. Because I think the the Visca one, I'll probably end up doing that again with this type of profile. The guy where I go, wow, he's young. And come end of 2021, he's either a top 10 dynasty receiver or he's outside the top 50. There's no in-between. Looks like he's headed for the outside the top 50 scenario. 
an example of a miss where I probably should have seen it coming was, I mean, I, I'm, I'm the stack guy. I love stacking. I was obsessed with the Buccaneers offense. Tom Brady was the mobile, was the non-mobile quarterback I targeted in all my drafts, obsessed with Brady. And I don't have much Evans or Godwin on my fantasy teams because I went, you know what? Antonio Brown and Gronk are just the most screaming value in drafts. You have to scoop them up, which ended up being true. Antonio Brown is the number five receiver per game in PPR this year. And you could get him in the ninth round. And he's the wide receiver five per game. Smash. Gronk. It's like the, what is he? The the tight end two per game or something. If you throw out the game where he had back spasms after two snaps. Gronk, absolute smash for late round tight end. I crushed those picks. But then I look up and I go, well, Evans and Godwin are top 12 in PPR, both top 12 in PPR points for this season. Yes, it took the Antonio Brown injury. However, even when Brown was healthy, they were both producing. And that's a case where if I liked the Buccaneers offense so much, and I talked openly about how we're better at team analysis than player analysis, then I inherently should have liked the starting receivers on the Buccaneers, Evans and Godwin, and that it doesn't matter as much that I think they're not necessarily good values or they're not going to get as many targets per game as Antonio Brown. What matters more is that this is an offense I like. I'm not as good. None of us are as good at predicting these micro player level takes as we are just saying, wow, holy crap, the Buccaneers have Brady, Fournette, A.B., Gronk, Evans, Godwin, a great O-line. They're going to score a ton of points. And that that's what we're better at. And I should have, even even if I think Evans and Godwin are not as good values, maybe I, yeah, I'll take more Antonio Brown and more Gronk in my fantasy drafts. But I took very little Evans and Godwin. And that's something that I think is a, is a real mistake of mine that I can learn from and say, you know what? That kind of violated, yes, I got so caught up in how these guys were such better values. But I also got caught up in player-level takes when at a certain point I have to say, you know what? I still want to be above the field when it comes to however many teams I draft. I want to have more Evans and Godwin than the average person if I like the Buccaneers that much. But I think that's a good one where I can learn from that take. Where's the Chenault experience? Yes, it was a miss, but I don't necessarily think chasing that profile is bad to do each year. No, because I, I think you're definitely going to hit on some of those. Like I'm like you. I was a big Gronk guy too in the value. And you look at those two players, and look, you can't, when I do projections before the year starts, I don't assume injuries. And you can, I don't have a big injury prone and believe the same guy's going to get hurt every year. I think some guys are just you know, not as lucky as others. But I think the process is right. Like I was big on Gronk where you could get him. I was big on um, Antonio Brown as well because where you could get him in the draft – and who's upside and have a wide receiver too or a flex play during bye weeks or during a playoff run. Gronk's a guy right now that's going to help a ton of teams during the playoff run if he can stay on the field. So I feel like you're, the process is right. But I love the fact that you say, yeah, the process is good. It makes sense because the value and the ROI you can get if those guys stay healthy for a full season. But I love the fact you're like, yeah, but Mike Evans and, and Chris Goddard are also good plays. And I could have gotten them, you know, yeah, I would have taken them at their, probably at their ADP or maybe a little bit higher, but I would have hit on that as well. Mm-hmm. I, I have a ton of Fournette as well in my drafts. Me too. Yeah, I like there's there's no running back actually that I have more of in my best ball drafts than Leonard Fournette. Like I across the board, I have so much Fournette. It's because I like the Buccaneers offense, and it was kind of like Chanel, where we 
we saw Chenault as having this crazy range of outcomes where it's anything from what he's doing right now to like, if he built on last year, he was averaging 11 fantasy points a game last year. He had 700 total yards in like 12 and a half games last year as a rookie. That's really good. Fournette was another guy. Crazy range of outcomes that I bought into heavily, just like Chenault, where I thought, you know what? Fournette is either going to be a league winning type player or nothing. And I'm just going to go all in knowing that this upside is there and that Ronald Jones probably isn't, there's probably not the, the total bell cow upside case for Ronald Jones, but I know that that is there for Fournette. We even saw it in the football playoffs last year. So I think that's kind of the idea of like hyper targeting the guys that you think have this crazy range of outcomes where ultimately you churn so much of your fantasy roster each year. I've dropped Chanel at this point in my leagues, but Leonard Fournette is winning me a lot of leagues based on where I got him. Cause he was going at a similar range to sure. a Chanel sometimes even later. So I think those are the kind of uh, decisions where I generally do want to lean on the, the high risk, high reward outcome because you want to get first or second place. And that sometimes the, the uncomfortable pick who has a terrible floor, like Fournette's floor is what Ronald Jones has been this year. Like Ronald Jones has been terrible. Fournette could have been that. Like, I, I can't claim to say, like, I knew Fournette would be the, the total workhorse. But when that's in the guy's range of outcomes and we've seen it before, I have to factor that in. Well, let's, let's move on. And, and one of my favorite aspects, and, and I don't know why, I feel like Twitter and the fantasy community is pretty big. And, and with that comes a league like the Squish and I feel like you guys were the only league or the only site that really kind of got out and wanted to help Scott Fishbowl contestants. And your rankings, I'll tell you what, I'm eight and four in the Scott Fishbowl. I'm not a redraft guy. I'm a dynasty guy. But I did nothing but go straight off of your rankings. I even sent you my team right afterwards. Said, hey, look, all I did is go straight off it. What do you think? It was a good team. Obviously, neither one of us knew Cam Akers was going to go out right away, but irrelevant to that, I might am eight and four, and that was a hell of a great tool. And I think you know your audience, and you went after it, and, and that was a great tool for us. So thank you for that. I'm glad. I'm actually I took Akers too. Took him in the third round. And I was like, oh my god, total bell cow. Uh, you get half a point for a first down. This guy's in an elite offense. Yeah. He's gonna he's gonna smash. Took him in the third round. I'm also eight and four, so no acres. I'm fighting that uphill battle. I have Antonio Brown and Gronk on my team, so they haven't had very many contributing weeks, but I, I think ultimately the strategy of trying to lock in some strong quarterback play and then going off of that and just trying to find like those micro edges in our rankings compared to what other people were likely drafting off of, I do think it led to success. I have Jamar Chase. Someone I was very high on compared to consensus. So I, I think that ultimately our, our rankings probably helped people overall, even if some of them, like the two of us, took Cam Akers several weeks before he misses the season, which you, you, you can't see that coming. No, you can't. Uh, a couple more things before we let you go, because it's a little longer than we used to go, but I want to get you right now and actually get to talk to you. And one of the questions I want to know is that Everyone talks about being a, ahead of the industry or being ahead of 
what people are doing to make themselves successful in the game. Do you see anything? Because analytics, I mean, it was all about film study. It was all about trying to find the great guy who, who looks like Tarzan but doesn't play like Jane. So with that being said, do you see things coming in the future that are going to change the game even more than what we've seen with them? I, I think that the future is still just with um, data-driven approaches and using analytics. And I, I actually really like film. I think sometimes people think, oh, you're an analytics guy. You must hate the film community. No, I actually think it's really valuable. But I think that the, the strength of the film community is individual player analysis and that it's not necessarily the most efficient way to, to spend your time purely for fantasy, but I think it's very helpful per player. And that I think I, I had an idea that I, I made a Twitter thread about this last year. And I was like, what if the film community kind of came together and all tried to put together different highlight clips and put these together for different players. And that if everyone kind of worked together harmoniously, that would kind of do what analytics is doing where analytics is, I can take a data set of hundreds of players and very quickly figure out who I think is good, who I think is bad and the probabilities of success. And I'm going to do fairly well with that. However, if I weave in uh, what the film community is telling me about certain players, then I can make little small adjustments to my rankings and my process and improve upon it. So I still think that analytics is probably the, the future and the, and the best way overall to innovate just because it's a little bit faster. If you think about, uh, if you watch film, you actually have to watch the film. If you're watching, say that you watch uh, Trevor Lawrence in college, you watch 300 pass attempts. That's going to take you quite a while, several hours at least, to watch 300 pass attempts and take some notes. I can just look at his college QBR, his college yards per attempt, what age he was with this production, and I can already start to generate some assumptions and have an idea of how good Trevor Lawrence likely is at the NFL level. So that's why I think that analytics is still kind of the future of the quick innovation, the, the quick innovation, but why I also think film is still really important because a lot of these micro adjustments are through film. And the reason that I knew that Elijah Mitchell's speed was important was because of the film community and the people who look at the Shanahan scheme. If I just, if I had never talked to anyone in my life and watched a Niners game, the last thing I would think is, wow, look at this zone running scheme. I would, that would have never crossed my mind. But because of the film community and the people that are grinding the tape and understanding how Shanahan runs his running back offense through the, how, how the running backs in that offense operate, I can then go, okay, I think the data point that links the successful running backs is 40 time. Elijah Mitchell looks like a better fit than Sermon. So that's why I think that generally the, the, the faster innovations seem to come with analytics, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like, gung-ho about we need no more film purely analytics because then i would have missed on mitchell potentially and i might have been too caught up in well mitchell can't succeed he's only 200 pounds trey sermon's 220 pounds most successful nfl running backs are 220 and then i would have paid attention to the wrong data point potentially but thanks to the film community i paid attention to the correct data point and said oh you guys are all saying 
Shanahan wants these fast running backs for the zone scheme. Cool. Uh, here's Elijah Mitchell. The stats say he's the better fit. I don't know, Josh. I'll tell you this. It's people like me that come to people like you to try and be better at the game. So I, I, one of the things that really I like about you is that any tweet, any thing that I've reached out to, you've never had a problem responding. And so I thank you for it. You're great for the community. And that Twitter community can be so combustible at times, if you know. Um, and I, there's been a few times where you and have engaged in people getting mad about this, that, or that. But I know for me, being a consumer of the game, being a consumer of the information, I appreciate the work that you do. And thank you for the, uh, the opportunity that you give us people to kind of engage with us and help us along this path. So thank you so much. And can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I don't want to act like I'm some like holy Twitter person that does everything right. I've engaged in my fair share of pettiness on Twitter throughout the past year and a half that I've been very active. But what I try and do is just like with my work, I try and iterate and get better. And I get into pretty much no Twitter feuds. Now I realize that that's a waste of time. It doesn't make anybody better. Even if I feel so strongly this way versus another way, if the other person feels so strongly this way and that it seems like neither of us are willing to budge, we should probably just leave it at that because neither of us are going to budge. So that's something that I've tried to get better at. And then in terms of uh, helping others, I think that's really important is that it seems like with any industry where money's involved, people very often seem to trend towards like, I want the money for myself. And I actually think it's really interesting that I've kind of carved out this uh, this role for myself where I make enough money to live the middle-class lifestyle and I do it through helping others and that it's not like, Oh, I'm making a, a living wage through profiting off of other people. And that I'm actually paid a good amount of money for my role to educate others. And I think that's kind of unique. And I think it's cool that it's possible in this industry to get paid to help others rather than feeling like the only way because I know a lot of other people out there kind of reframe it as if I want to make money in this industry, I have to make sure not to reveal anything. I can't let anyone learn what I know. So I beat them in fantasy. And like, of, of course I like to win in fantasy. It's not like I want to get uh 10th place in all my leagues, but right. I also think that there is, I've seen real monetary value myself and have had, and have had a job via helping others. And I think that that's actually really important and that we should try and promote this type of position more because I know there's other people out there who want to help others. And I just think it's better overall. Like people get addicted to gambling, all this type of stuff. Like money makes people do crazy things. Yeah. So I think it's kind of cool that I'm in this unique position where my, my salary is tied up and making sure that player profilers updated and that we're helping as many people as possible. <laughs> so I try and take that seriously. And I think that's one of the, the lucky parts about my job is that, there's no financial incentives tied up in like making sure that I beat other people in fantasy for my job. And that like, yes, of course I like to win, but if I'm not helping others win as well, I would get fired. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that's kind of an interesting note is that a lot of site contributors, they get paid so little from these websites and they're like, I'm getting a hundred dollars a week to contribute. It's if very that- tempting. Oh, I found this really cool thing about, this player, I'm going to play him in DFS. I'm not going to tell anyone though. It's sure. not worth me 
getting this, this hundred dollars a week to reveal this, I want to profit myself. And I think that that's actually just bad for the industry as a whole. And that I don't even necessarily fault those people. They're probably just acting in their own best interest for what's going on with them. But I think it's more so promoting the job that I have and that you can also have this type of job and help try your best to help others because everyone loves fantasy football, but not everyone has 50 to 70 hours a week to put into it. Like I do. So I think I'm just kind of lucky in that sense. Well, Hey man, we appreciate you, brother. This is, this has been a phenomenal show, man. Appreciate you coming on, especially last minute. You know, let's appreciate you, man. <laughs> it was, it wasn't last minute. It was a week early minute. No, it was yeah. good. I, I had the full day preparation. I got the show sheet on Tuesday and I was like, this is the most prepared podcast. Usually I get it two days beforehand. What is going on? Yeah. And then this yeah. morning I was like, oh, I, well, I just keep telling people going that. on. Yeah, yeah right. Tell them that we know what the hell we're doing. Josh, I just keep telling people. I'll be like, oh, this podcast, like six months in advance, they book you. They're going to fly you out yeah. to this private location. You're going to get Intel months in advance. You're going to yeah. memorize the show sheet. It's perfect. Yeah. There you go, man. Thank you so much, Josh. We appreciate it. And I look forward to, uh, you know, reaching out to you in the future. Thanks, hey, go man. Bulldogs. There we go. Go Bulldogs. Oh, we can all agree. Yeah. Brad, Bruce, thank you so much. All thank right. You. See you guys all next week.